Frey, in Myths and Legends Around the World, Collection 13. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Frey, by A. and E. Keery, 1904. Part 1. On Tiptoe in Air Throne I told you some time ago how Van Frey went away into Alfheim with the Light Elves, of whom Odin made him king and schoolmaster. You've heard what Frey was like, and the kind of lessons he promised to teach his pupils, so you can imagine what pleasant times they had of it in Alfheim. Wherever Frey came, there was summer and sunshine. Flowers sprang up under his footsteps, and bright-winged insects like flying flowers hovered round his head. His warm breath ripened the fruit on the trees, and gave a bright yellow color to the corn, and purple bloom to the grapes, as he passed through the fields and vineyards. When he rode along in his car, drawn by the stately boar, golden bristles, soft winds blew before him, filling the air with fragrance and spreading abroad the news, Van Frey is coming, and every half-closed flower burst into perfect beauty, and forest and field and hill flushed their richest colors to meet his presence. Under Frey's care and instruction, the pretty little light elves forgot their idle ways, and learned all the pleasant tasks he had promised to teach them, it was the prettiest possible sight to see them in the evening, filling their tiny buckets and running about among the woods and meadows to hang the dewdrops deftly on the slender tips of the grass blades, or to drop them into the half-closed cups of the sleepy flowers. When this last of their day's tasks was over, they used to cluster round their summer king, like bees about the queen while he told them stories about the wars between the Aesir and the giants, or of the old time when he lived alone with his father Njord in Noatun, and listened to the waves singing songs of far distant lands. So pleasantly did they spend their time in Alfheim. But in the midst of all this work and play, Frey had a wish in his mind of which he could not help often talking to his clear-minded messenger and friend, Skirnir. I have seen many things, he used to say, and travelled through many lands, but to see all the world at once, as Asa Odin does from Air Throne, that must be a splendid sight. Only Father Odin may sit on Air Throne, Skirnir would say, and it seemed to Frey that this answer was not so much to the purpose as his friend's sayings generally were. At length, one very clear summer evening, when Odin was feasting with the other Aesir in Valhalla, Frey could restrain his curiosity no longer. He left Elfheim, where all the little elves were fast asleep, and without asking anyone's advice, climbed into Air Throne, and stood on tiptoe in Odin's very seat. It was a clear evening, and I had perhaps better not even try to tell you what Frey saw. He looked first all round him over Mannheim, where the rosy light of the set sun still lingered, and where men and birds and flowers were gathering themselves up for their night's repose. Then he glanced towards the heavenly hills where Bifrost rested, and then towards the shadowy land which deepened down into Niflheim. 
At length he turned his eyes northward to the misty land of Jotunheim. There the shades of evening had already fallen, but from his high place Frey could still see distinct shapes moving about through the gloom. Strange and monstrous shapes they were, and Frey stood a little higher on tiptoe that he might look further after them. In this position he could just descry a tall house standing on a hill in the very middle of Jutenheim. While he looked at it, a maiden came and lifted up her arms to undo the latch of the door. It was dusk in Jutenheim, but when this maiden lifted up her white arms, such a dazzling reflection came from them that Jutenheim and the sky and all the sea were flooded with clear light. For a moment everything could be distinctly seen, but Frey saw nothing but the face of the maiden with the uplifted arms, and when she had entered the house and shut the door after her and darkness fell again on earth and sky and sea, darkness fell too upon Frey's heart. Part 2. The Gift The next morning when the little elves woke up with the dawn and came thronging round their king to receive his commands, they were surprised to see that he had changed since they last saw him. He's grown up in the night, they whispered to one another sorrowfully, and in truth he was no longer so fit a teacher and playfellow for the merry little people as he'd been a few hours before. It was to no purpose that the sweet winds blew and the flowers opened when Frey came forth from his chamber. A bright white light still danced before him and nothing now seemed to him worth looking at. That evening, when the sun had set and work was over, there were no stories for the light elves. Be still, Frey said, when they pressed round. If you will be still and listen, there are stories enough to be heard better than mine. I do not know whether the elves heard anything, but to Frey it seemed that flowers and birds and winds and the whispering rivers united that day in singing one song which he never wearied of hearing. We are fair, they said, but there is nothing in the whole world so fair as Gerda, the giant maiden whom you saw last night in Jotunheim. Frey has dewdrops in his eyes, the little elves said to each other in whispers, as they sat round looking up at him, and they felt very much surprised, for only to men and the Aesir is it permitted to be sorrowful and weep. Soon, however, Wiser people noticed the change that had come over the summer king, and his good-natured father, Niard, set Skirnir one day into Alfheim to inquire into the cause of Frey's sorrow. He found him walking alone in a shady place, and Frey was glad enough to tell his trouble to his wise friend. When he had related the whole story, he said, "'And now you will see that there is no use in asking me to be merry as I used to be.' For how can I ever be happy in Alfheim and enjoy the summer and sunshine while my dear Gert, whom I love, is living in a dark, cold land among cruel giants? If she be really as beautiful and beloved as you say, answered Skirnir, she must be sadly out of place in Jutenheim. Why do you not ask her to be your wife and live with you in Alfheim? That I would only too gladly do, answered Frey. But if I were to leave Alfheim only for a few hours, the cruel giant Reim, the frost giant, would rush in to take my place. All the labours of the year would be undone in a night, and the poor toiling men who are watching for the harvest 
would wake some morning to find their cornfields and orchards buried in snow. Well, said Skirnir, thoughtfully, I am neither so strong nor so beautiful as you, Frey, but if you will give me the sword that hangs by your side, I will undertake the journey to Jutenheim, and I will speak in such a way of you and of Alfheim to the lovely Gert that she will gladly leave her land and the house of her giant father to come to you. Now Frey's sword was a gift, and he knew well enough that he ought not to part with it, or trust it in any hands but his own. And yet how could he expect Skirnir to risk all the dangers of Jotunheim for any less recompense than an enchanted sword? And what other hope had he of ever seeing his dear Goethe again? He did not allow himself a moment to think of the choice he was making. He unbuckled his sword from his side and put it into Skirnir's hands, and then he turned rather pettishly away and threw himself down on a mossy bank under a tree. You will be many days in travelling to Jotunheim, he said, and all the time I shall be miserable. Skirnir was too sensible to think this speech worth answering. He took a hasty farewell of Frey and prepared to set off on his journey. But before he left the hill, he chanced to see the reflection of Frey's face in a little pool of water that lay near. In spite of its sorrowful expression, it was as beautiful as the woods are in full summer, and a clever thought came into Skirnir's mind. He stooped down, without Frey seeing him, and with cunning touch stole the picture out of the water. Then he fastened it up carefully in his silver drinking horn, and hiding it in his mantle, he mounted his horse and rode towards Jotunheim, secure of succeeding in his mission, since he carried a matchless sword to conquer the giant, and a matchless picture to win the maiden. Part 3 Fairest Gert I told you that the house of Dimir, Gerda's father, stood in the middle of Jotunheim, so it will not be difficult for you to imagine what a toilsome and wondrous journey Skirnir had. He was a brave hero, and he rode a brave horse, but when they came to the barrier of murky flame that surrounds Jotunheim, a shudder came over both. Dark it is without, said Skirnir to his horse, and you and I must leap through flame and go over hoar mountains among giant folk. The giants will take us both, or we shall return victorious together. Then he patted his horse's neck and touched him with his armed heel, and with one bound he cleared the barrier and his hoofs rang on the frozen land. Their first day's journey was through the land of the frost giants, whose prickly touch kills and whose breath is sharper than swords. Then they passed through the dwellings of the horse-headed and vulture-headed giants, monsters terrible to see. Skirnir hid his face, and the horse flew along swifter than the wind. On the evening of the third day they reached Gimir's house. Skirnir rode around nine times. Though there were twenty doors, he could find no entrance, for fierce three-headed dogs guarded every doorway. At length he saw a herdsman pass near, and he rode up and asked him how it was possible for a stranger to enter Gimir's house or get a sight of his fair daughter, Gert. "'Are you doomed to death, or are you already a dead man?' answered the herdsman. 
that you talk of seeing Gimir's fair daughter, or entering a house from which no one ever returns. My death is fixed for one day, said Skirmir in answer, and his voice, the voice of an Asal, sounded loud and clear through the misty air of Jotunheim. It reached the ears of the fair Gert as she sat in her chamber with her maidens. What is that noise of noises, she said, that I hear? The earth shakes with it, and all Gimir's halls tremble. Then one of the maidens got up and peeped out of the window. I see a man, she said. He has dismounted from his horse, and he's fearlessly letting it graze before the door. Go out and bring him in stealthily, then, said Gerda. I must again hear him speak, for his voice is sweeter than the ringing of bells. So the maiden rose and opened the house door softly, lest the grim giant, Gimir, who was drinking mead in the banquet hall with seven other giants, should hear and come forth. Skirnir heard the door open, and understanding the maiden's sign, he entered with stealthy steps and followed her to Gerda's chamber. As soon as he entered the doorway, the light from her face shone upon him, and he no longer wondered that Frey had given up his sword. "'Are you the son of an Asa, or an Alf, or of a wise van?' asked Gerda. "'And why have you come through flame and snow to visit our halls?' Then Skirnir came forward and knelt at Gerda's feet, and gave his message and spoke as he had promised to speak, of Van Frey and of Alfheim. Gerda listened, and it was pleasant enough to talk to her, looking into her bright face, but she did not seem to understand much of what he said. He promised to give her eleven golden apples from Iduna's grove if she would go with him, and that she should have the magic ring Draupnir from which Every day a still fairer jewel fell. But he found there was no use in talking of beautiful things to one who had never in all her life seen anything beautiful. Gerda smiled at him as a child smiles at a fairy tale. At length he grew angry. If you are so childish, maiden, he said, that you can believe only what you have seen and have no thought of Aesirland or the Aesir, then sorrow and utter darkness shall fall upon you. You shall live alone on the Eagle Mount, turned towards hell. Terrors shall beset you. Weeping shall be your lot. Men and Aesir will hate you, and you shall be doomed to live forever with the frost giant, Rhyme, in whose cold arms you will wither away like a thistle on a housetop. Gently, said Gert, turning away her bright head and sighing, how am I to blame? You make such a talk of your Aesir and your Aesir, but how can I know about it, when all my life long I've lived with giants? At these words, Skirnir rose as if he would have departed, but Gerda called him back. You must drink a cup of mead, she said, in return for your sweet-sounding words. Skirnir heard this gladly, for now he knew what he would do. He took the cup from her hand, drank off the mead, and before he returned it, he contrived cleverly to pour in the water from his drinking horn, on which Frey's image was painted. Then he put the cup into Goethe's hand and bade her look. She smiled as she looked, and the longer she looked, the sweeter grew her smile, for she looked for the first time on a face that loved her, 
and many things became clear to her that she had never understood before. Skirnir's words were no longer like fairy tales. She could now believe in Aesir land and in all beautiful things. Go back to your master, she said at last, and tell him that in nine days I will meet him in the warm wood Barry. After hearing these joyful words, Skirnir made haste to take leave, for every moment that he lingered in the giant's house he was in danger. One of Gerda's maidens conducted him to the door, and he mounted his horse again and rode from Jotunheim with a glad heart. Part 4 The Wood Barry When Skirnir got back to Alfheim and told Gerd's answer to Frey, he was disappointed to find that his master did not immediately look as bright and happy as he'd expected. Nine days, he said, but how can I wait nine days? One day is long, and three days are very long, but nine days might as well be a whole year. I have heard children say such things when one tells them to wait for a new toy. Skirnir and old Niort only laughed at it, but Freya and all the ladies of Asgard made a journey to Alfheim when they heard the story to comfort Frey and hear all the news about the wedding. Dear Frey, they said, it will never do to lie still here, sighing under a tree. You're quite mistaken about the time being long. It's hardly long enough to prepare the marriage presents and talk over the wedding. You have no idea how busy we're going to be. Everything in Alfheim will have to be altered a little. At these words, Frey really did lift up his head and wake up from his musings. He looked, in truth, a little frightened at the thought. But when all the Asgard ladies were ready to work for his wedding, how could he make any objection? He was not allowed to have much share in the business himself, but he had little time during the nine days to indulge in private thought, for never before was there such a commotion in Alfheim. The ladies found so many things that wanted overlooking, and the little light elves were not of the slightest use to anyone. They forgot all their usual tasks and went running about through groves and fields and by the sedgy banks of rivers, peering into earth holes and creeping down into flower cups and empty snail shells, everyone hoping to find a gift for Gerda. Some stole the light from glowworms' tails and wove it into a necklace, and others pulled the ruby spots from cowslip leaves to set with jewels the acorn cups that Gerda was to drink from while the swiftest runners chased the butterflies and pulled feathers from their wings to make fans and bonnet plumes. All the work was scarcely finished when the ninth day came and Frey set out from Alfheim with all his elves to the warm wood Barry. The Aesir joined him on the way, and they made, together, something like a wedding procession. First came Frey in his chariot, drawn by golden bristles, and carrying in his hand the wedding ring which was none other than Draupnir, the magic ring of which so many stories are told. Odin and Frigga followed with their wedding gift the ship Skidbladnir, in which all the Aesir could sit and sail, though it could afterwards be folded up so small that you might carry it in your hand. Then came Iduna, with eleven golden apples in a basket on her fair head, and then two and two all the heroes and ladies with their gifts. All round them flocked the elves, 
toiling under the weight of their offerings. It took twenty little people to carry one gift, and yet there was not one so large as a baby's finger. Laughing and singing and dancing, they entered the warm wood, and every summer flower sent a sweet breath after them. Everything on earth smiled on the wedding day of Frey and Gerda. Only, when it was all over, and everyone had gone home, and the moon shone cold into the wood, it seemed as if the Vanir spoke to one another. Odin, said one voice, gave his eye for wisdom, and we have seen that it was well done. Frey, answered the other, has given his sword for happiness. It may be well to be unarmed while the sun shines and the bright days last, but when Ragnarok has come and the sons of Muspel ride down to the last fight, will not Frey regret his sword? Frey appears as the summer god, and the boar was sacred to him because from its tearing up the earth with its tusks it typified the agriculture and return of the seed-sowing time. Gerda is supposed to represent the frozen earth which summer seeing from far off loves and woos to his embrace. The lighting of the sky by the uplifted giant maiden's arms is explained to mean the northern lights glancing from one end of heaven to the other. Frey parts with his sword in order to win Gerda. This is alluded to in both Eddas as if it were wrong or at any rate highly imprudent when the sons of Muspel come at Ragnarok, it is said, and Frey shall have to meet Surtur in battle, then wilt thou, unhappy, not have wherewith to fight. The ship Skidbladnir was said to have been made by four dwarfs in the beginning of time. It is alluded to in a poem quoted before. Draupnir is not mentioned in the Edda in connection with Frey and Gerda. The Northmen had three grand religious festivals in their year. They all took place in the winter half of the year, between the harvest and seed time. One was celebrated in midwinter about the turn of the day, and from so very nearly coinciding with our Christmas, its name, Yule, came to be applied to the Christian festival. Yule is derived from a name of Odin, but it is said by Lang, that this winter feast was held in honour of Thor. In Fouquet's writings, a custom is named which the Scandinavians had of making vows to accomplish some great enterprise before another new year, over a golden boar's head at this winter feast. The mention of the golden boar seems to connect the festival with the god Frey. Probably it was a general propitiation of the summer deities for the coming year. The second festival was in honour of the goddesses, the third, about spring, in honour of Odin, because at this season warlike expeditions began to be undertaken. End of Frey in Myths and Legends Around the World, Collection 13 Read by Sandra, Montreal, 2022